Hi, I'm Vibov. Welcome to the Tech Book Club. Today I am joined by my sister, Aditi. Aditi, how are Hello. you doing? Good, dude. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm calling in from Los Angeles, and you're in New York City, and I will be joining you soon in a couple of weeks. I'll be there. Yeah, so I'm very that'll excited. be great. So, Aditi, just to give our listeners some background, obviously, you and I grew up in Orange County. You went to school at the University of Pennsylvania, and you majored in finance and biomedical engineering, right? Yeah. And then you've been working at Goldman Sachs since graduation. You've been particularly working on the Apple card, which is awesome. And today we will be discussing Netflix by Gina Keating. Yeah, so let's just dive into it. Leithi, is there anything you want to add before we talk talk about the book? No, no. Glad to be here. (laughs) Awesome. So Netflix is about the history of Netflix and it was published in 2012 so it's around 15 years of history from 1997 to 2012 but obviously it doesn't cover the last seven or eight years of Netflix's history but it's still a fascinating book I I enjoyed reading it what did you think about the book Aditi? I thought Netflix was really interesting for a couple of reasons. Like first, I thought that the actual business model was cool to see how they started to build up their business model. The personalities are really interesting. And then of course, you know, the competitive dynamic between Blockbuster and Netflix was uh, super fascinating to get a deeper glance into. I think it's actually really relevant for leaders anywhere who are trying to improve their own like startups or work on their own businesses like the lessons learned from this book are still applicable today so i found that to be valuable yeah i totally agree so why don't we start by talking about netflix's co-founders reed hastings and mark randolph what did you think about these two co-founders and like how did they first get started A little bit of background for the listeners. Netflix was founded by Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph. And before founding Netflix, Hastings and Randolph were at another company, Pure Atria, and they worked there together. That's where they met. These two would start to have conversations and and what would be some of the early experiments that would then be the foundation of Netflix. And what really happened that was pivotal in this was that Pure Atria, the company that both of these two individuals worked at, was getting acquired. And it was during those four months that it took to close that deal that Hastings and Randolph, on their like long commutes from Santa Cruz to Silicon Valley, that they actually started to brainstorm like on those car rides what would actually be Netflix the company that they sought the most inspiration from was Amazon. Amazon was really big at that time. It was probably the, uh, one of the biggest tech companies. And a lot of people were thinking about, oh, how do I you know, apply Amazon to you know, DVDs and other sorts of consumer products? And so that's kind of the discussion that these two had. Right, like Mark Randolph was particularly inspired by Amazon and he wanted to create um, Amazon-esque company, like what Amazon did to books, he wanted to do for some other consumer good. And the initial idea was VHS tapes, right? Uh, for yeah. rental. 
So like the idea was to mail these tapes. DVDs didn't exist at the time, but they rejected the idea of VHS tapes because inventory costs would be 65 to $80 per tape and mailing costs for such bulky inventory would be pretty high. It wasn't until like DVDs became more prominent. And this was like the time, like the late nineties where DVDs became more prominent. Did they like think about doing DVDs? And then they like, they had this one experiment where they mailed a DVD and tried to see if it ended up in good shape and it worked. And then they basically chose DVDs. Like let's do DVDs. Let's do Mark Randolph founded the company and Hastings became the first investor putting in $2 million. Yeah. And timing was everything at that time, right? Like DVDs needed to exist. And this was interesting to me because I don't know if you remember like, you know, and other people who are listening, like growing up, having a VHS video player, right? Costs like a couple hundred dollars. So like to predict that people are going to go and spend another $100 or $200 to buy a DVD player to replace their VHS, it's, it's actually kind of a high switching cost. And then the second thing is that e-commerce needed to exist. So, you know, things like Amazon. But the really important part of e-commerce is trust over the internet. That was one of the first challenges Amazon had too. Like, can people trust this like random website that's telling me they're going to magically mail me DVDs? That kind of thing was only in its early stages. You were really like as a consumer used to going to a store that's like in front of you and having trust in e-commerce was another really big part of what made this process even viable. So there were obvious similarities between Netflix and Amazon. And of course, like the Netflix co-founders were inspired by Amazon. So some of the similarities, Amazon was the largest selection of books and Netflix strived to have the largest collection of DVDs. Both required fulfillment centers. Um, These were warehouses that stock products that are then distributed to consumers via mail. Amazon's fulfillment centers were optimized for distributing books and Netflix's fulfillment centers were optimized for distributing DVDs. Both required significant investments early on because of high startup costs. They needed teams of engineers, servers, and fulfillment centers. And you compare that to startups today that don't need as much funding because startup costs are just not as high. Yeah. All, both of these companies rode the wave of the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. Yeah. So the main difference, though, between them is what they actually focused on, the medium. And so Netflix, uh, by focusing on renting DVDs, their business model um, had to take into account some other nuances. So first, they did initially sell and rent DVDs. Um, similar to how Amazon, you know, sells books, like selling DVDs was actually more profitable than renting DVDs. But Hastings, you know, was honestly a visionary. He knew that renting DVDs was the future. He was really trying to build a business that was going to disrupt itself. And so that one day they could eventually get rid of selling DVDs entirely and tailor Netflix around renting DVDs. That takes a lot of foresight to have that kind of vision. Selling DVDs was much more profitable than renting DVDs. That's like the key difference. But Hastings knew they weren't going to have a differentiated 
competitive business if they focused on selling DVDs. Like anyone would be able to do that online. Like renting DVDs and like the infrastructure that comes with that was the main differentiator in how they were going to basically beat competitors, including Blockbuster. Right. And the product construct they used to be able to influence customers into going towards renting as opposed to buying the DVDs was actually pretty, pretty interesting. It seems normal now, but it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. So the three, three main distinguishers that I saw um, in the book was that, one, they let users rent as many movies in a month as they would like. They could rent up to six movies at a time, but if you went through all six movies, you could return them and get any new fresh set of six movies. Second, they had no due dates or late fees. That's like wild. Like even when you think about library books right now, library books, you have to return in every two weeks and it's like really annoying. Like they got <laughs> rid of the concept of a due date. They got rid of all the late fees. Blockbuster was struggling convincing their P&L owners to get rid of late fees because late fees brought in so much money. And then the last piece was the queue. This is what enabled a customer to continually be excited about movies. It made movie renting a habit because you had a queue of like a hundred movies that you wanted to watch. And then the top ones that you would keep getting sent to you and you would return them and it would keep getting sent to you. So it was fueling itself. Yeah. And I think back to when we were kids and how we would go on Netflix.com and like change the queue up all the time and put all our top movies. Like we had a queue of over a hundred movies. I actually went back and looked at when we first became Netflix members and it was all the way back in 2003. It's ridiculous. Um, But like we would always get three movies at a time. We would always, maybe not race to the mail but like we were excited when a movie that we wanted to watch came to the mail and like I often would go to the mail when I knew the movie was arriving and I would get the mail and like I'd watch that movie in like that beautiful red envelope so it was was pretty great stuff and like it's crazy how long Netflix has been in our life and like talking about all those things you talked about like how they were able to rent as many movies as they wanted like no due dates, no late fees, and how easy it was to exchange DVDs because of the queue. Like you compare that to Blockbusters and it's like complete night and day. Like in Blockbusters, each movie costs a certain amount. There were due dates and there were late fees. There's fighting, as you said. It was not particularly easy to find a movie. You had to go to the physical store and you had to see what was available. (laughs) You had to search, yeah. Yeah, you had to like look around, ask the employees. And then that was very different than having a queue where like all your movies could be stored. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the founders a little bit more. So we talked about how one of the co-founders was Reed Hastings and the other one was Mark Randolph. Randolph was the original founder and the CEO. Hastings was the first investor with the $2 million investment. And as Netflix grew, Hastings became more interested in Netflix and he eventually took over as CEO and he's probably the public face of Netflix today. How do you compare these two figures like Hastings and Randolph? This is definitely one of my favorite parts of the book, the comparison between these two leaders. And Randolph is the one that started it, right? So Randolph and Hastings, they were the, they were the ones that came up with the idea in those long car rides going back to those, that initial inception. And that's kind of what you saw as well when you look at the way that their leadership styles occurred. Randolph 
was the first CEO and he was free flowing and creative. He liked to have an environment where you were really focused on like problem solving, thinking about what is it that the customer wants, marketing. He was the vice president of corporate marketing in their earlier company. And he was the one that like really cared about experimentation, you know, like he worked with Hastings to do that experiment, the first experiment ever to send that CD. Hastings, on the other hand, was not as generous. He was what others would call to be more like mechanical. He was more mathematical. He was not very emotional. He was very strict compared to Randolph. Randolph, who like focused much more on creativity and like empowering other employees, Hastings was much more top down. It came down to what the business needed. And so in the very, very early days, you know, when you're trying to like come up with that initial concept or when you're trying to, um, you know, build a website, Randolph's skills were probably more useful, but to build a fulfillment center, to create algorithms, to figure out what users wanted, you needed to have that mathematical side that Hastings brought. When it comes to direct marketing, when you're really trying to evaluate like the effectiveness of cost of acquisitions and sending out mailers with coupons in them and their actual like open rates and how that converts to new accounts booked, Hastings built a very complex acquisition model. That was something that Randolph couldn't do. Yeah, Hastings would do whatever it took. Like when Netflix IPO in 2001, he cut nearly half of the workforce so they could achieve profitability. And that's something that Randolph couldn't really stomach. He was, again, like a lot more liberal, a lot more free-flowing, like that sort of cohesive environment and like not very cutthroat at all. These things would also do things like gradually move Randolph out of the company and assign more and more duties to other executives until Randolph had no role. And, That's something that just shows that Hastings has an agenda, like has a plan in motion. And even very early on in this company, like this company was only a few years old when he basically ousted Randolph, the original founder of this company. But like Hastings would do these things and was almost like a mastermind kind of guy in thinking of like what to do next and creating a roadmap on how to structure the company and what the role of all these people should be and how to eventually move someone like Randolph completely out of the company. There's this one quote from Randolph that I thought was pretty interesting where he, you know, credits Hastings for successfully scaling the company. He himself was better at a more of a startup stage. And so the quote is at the very, at the beginning, it's much, it's very much triage. If there are a hundred things broken, you need the skill to pick the three you've got to fix. I'm really good at that. I'm not good at the other 97. And so it is an interesting way to reflect on your own leadership style, I think, you know, to think about, are you more of the kind of person that's good at the startup idea build phase? Or are you more of the person that is good at running the business and thinking about how do you scale a business? Right. So let's talk about blockbusters for a little bit. The common narrative of Netflix versus Blockbusters is that Netflix came in, Blockbusters couldn't compete, and Blockbusters soon declared bankruptcy. You and I know that that is not true at all. So what is the truth? So Blockbuster was indeed late to the online game. 
And Netflix did have better operations and what was much more cost efficient. That's what we've you know, typically heard in the media. However, what people don't realize is that Blockbuster had really strong technical chops too. So they were building the same capabilities that Netflix was building. They had an army of resources to back that. They had a strong leader as well. So they were neck and neck with Netflix, both in their acquisition costs month over month, as well as in their techno technological stack. Blockbuster eventually came out with an even stronger value proposition, the ability for users to both order online and go to physical stores. That is an impressive connection where you can order something online, it comes into your um, mail at your convenience, and then you're able to just drop it off on your way to work in the morning, pick up another movie in a physical store. That connection of online to physical presence was something that Blockbuster was uniquely poised to be able to do, and they actually started to provide that value prop to customers. Right. You could basically order online, and you could also satisfy like the urge to just immediately watch a movie and just go straight to the store like there was synergies there you could basically do both and i think when blockbusters first came out with total access which is what they called their combined online presence with their in-store option wall street thought that blockbusters was going to win so i have some numbers here so before total access blockbusters was already trying to compete with netflix with their online dvd rentals but the market was in netflix's favor like Netflix had 70% of the market share and Blockbusters just had 30%. But after Total Access, which again is like their combined online presence and in-store option, Blockbusters had 70% of the market and Netflix had 30% of the market. And Blockbusters also had a fairly large balance sheet with strong cash balances. So they were able to compete on price. Like they could cut prices at a point at which Netflix could not just not compete, but be incredibly unprofitable. So Aditi, what, what ended up happening <laughs> to Blockbusters? Like, why aren't there Blockbuster stores today? It's sad, but they simply self-destructed. The right. board of Blockbusters featured a very well-known activist investor named Carl Icahn. Did you, do you know about Carl Icahn before reading about this book? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's tough for me to know, like, how famous this guy is because, like, Obviously, I, I did a lot of investing in college. So Carla Khan was like a pretty famous like activist investor. But it's cool to know that like people who aren't interested in investing also have heard about this guy. I mean, he was a big person in my school, too. Um, right. He also lives in New York. So like I well, have, I one of my friends <laughs> has like a picture with him. And so it's just everyone's crazy about him. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, when you have an when you're in bed with an investor like Carl Icahn, it can like really hurt you. And that's where, so basically Carl Icahn was like, we're in this battle with Netflix and he doesn't see the vision. He does not see what's going on with what Blockbuster is trying to do. And he thinks that they're going to lose. So he wants to pull out. And every single time that the Blockbuster stock dropped, Icahn blamed Antioco, the CEO of Blockbusters for the digital, for the digital side of things. And right. continuously pestered him, harassed him. And it got to a point where Antioco wrote in a letter to Icon that he eventually filed to the SEC. He said, the turmoil and, un and uncertainty that you have created threatens to destroy the organization, jeopardize our success, and 
could prove damaging to shareholder value. And it was in these sorts of really contentious moments that eventually Carl Icahn influenced the removal of John Antioco from the CEO position. Right. And Antico like actually set block up, blockbusters up to compete, right? He was the person behind yeah. removing late fees and investing heavily online. And unfortunately, because of Carl Icahn, John Antico, I wouldn't call him a visionary, but he did a he was he was a good practical CEO for blockbusters at the time. And unfortunately, Carl Icahn basically led to his removal from the CEO position. Yeah. So once John Antioco was removed from the CEO position. They put in Jim Keys. They put in Jim Keys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. Jim, Ke- Jim Keys, I love, I love the story. It's so funny. <laughs> like Jim Keys removed funding from their online presence completely. Just he saw it as a cash burning, prop, cash burning proposition, and just like completely removed any investment on their from their online presence. He actually doubled down on physical stores. And he put things like pizzas and merchandise in the stores, thinking that blockbusters could be a place where people could come in with their family, rent a movie, and maybe grab a pizza. This is just so ridiculous. Yeah, it made no sense whatsoever. Basically, he completely undid everything that um, Antioco had worked for. And the neck-and-neck competition that Netflix was having with Antioco and in blockbusters was just completely self-sabotaged and there are there are moments in the book that were where like the Netflix executives were just like baffled they were just looking at the decisions made by blockbusters and they were like wow we just got away with this they got away with it with the just by just by a very small sliver yeah and I forget this guy's name but Antioco's lieutenant basically in blockbusters but there was a moment when you basically see all the hard work that this guy puts in for his entire um entire career at blockbusters trying to compete with netflix and basically putting together an online presence in blockbusters and then coming out with total access like this guy at blockbusters did so many things and then once antioco was ousted and once Jim Keyes replaced him as the CEO and started doing these ridiculous things like remove funding from blockbusters, like there was a moment where he basically goes somewhere and just starts crying because blockbusters had wasted many, many years of his life. Everything was undone. So once the financial crisis occurred, um, Blockbusters had $350 million of debt with insignificant cash flows decreasing year by year. And seeing the business model, the banks just were not willing to refinance. So Blockbusters had to declare bankruptcy. In bankruptcy, there's actually two options for a company. So the first option is reorganization. Basically, what that means is the courts think that and, and, the, and the creditors also believe that there is a viable business in this company. It's just that the debt was too high. So negotiations occur over the debt obligations and the company emerges with a new balance sheet. But then they emerge out of, a, out of bankruptcy. So this is what happens with most 
companies that file for bankruptcy. And this is what happened to General Motors. They were able to merge because they had a sustainable business model. The other option in bankruptcy is liquidation. So what liquidation means is not only is the debt too high, but the business model is not sustainable. This is what happened to Toys R Us. It just didn't make sense for Toys R Us to continue running as a business, RIP. And what they ended up doing was liquidate rather than reorganize. With Blockbusters, they liquidated. They did not reorganize because their business model which was moving away from online rental and double downing on physical stores was completely broken. And of course it all goes back to the board deciding to put keys as CEO and remove funding from the online rental business. So the book ends with Netflix moving into the streaming space, but of course, since the book was published in 2012, they only talk about the early days of streaming. They actually had not even gone into original content yet. They were a, a year away from their first original series, House of Cards. Original content eventually became the main differentiator for Netflix as more streaming services entered the market. But I think that I will admire Netflix, and I think everyone will admire Netflix for shifting its business model from DVDs into streaming in the late 2000s, basically doubling down on disrupting their own business like they did it once by going from selling dvds to renting dvds and now they're doing it again yep yeah it's like one of those things that's like unpopular at the time but necessary to compete and like that's what differentiates like businesses that only last a couple of years relative to businesses like netflix that last decades and decades and it's largely because of visionary co-founders like Reed Hastings, of course. Well put. So I think that, that covers the book. Aditi, is there anything else you want to add about Netflix by uh, Gina Keating? I think the only thing I would add is thinking about other business leaders. The idea that you work on, right? how far can you stretch that idea? How would your idea be disrupted? And then are you on the chase? Are you fearful of that? Or are you on the chase of realizing that? I think it's an interesting question for all founders that are out there is like, okay, what what is the thing that is going to make my world a dinosaur? That's gonna make it archaic. And how do I, how do I get past that? It's almost like an existential question that you know a lot of startups can ask themselves and a lot of business leaders can ask themselves too. And taking that on fearlessly, I think can make you a better, better leader. Right, it's like asking yourself, why won't I exist in 10 years? And then once you have like a fully dedicated answer to that question, you then ask yourself the question like, what will I do to make myself exist in 10 years? And that's what Hastings did. Amazing, Aditi. Thanks for joining me. And I will see you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Awesome. Dude. This has been the Tech Book Club. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.